Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, Dan and I tackle one of the biggest debates that goes on in finance, active investing versus passive. We'll get into it in just a moment. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back, everybody, to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, certified financial planner, joined by a fellow CFP, Dan Maseka, my partner and friend. How are you, sir? Hey, Ross. I'm very good sitting here in the air-conditioned house. Oh, my gosh. It is a scorcher. Yeah, it's been bad all weekend, and I spent way too much time outside. Yeah, well, you were doing something fun, at least, right? You Weren't, weren't you, you jamming with a Bob Marley tribute band? Yep, jamming with Bob Marley. Uh, jamming with the Bob Marley band, that is, on Sunday. And then I made my first trip to the National Arboretum, which I've never been to before. And uh, we had a good time, but it, it was it was brutal. Yeah, yeah, no, it was pretty hot. Uh, I don't know if you watch any golf, but the John Rahm story over the weekend was absolutely horrible. What, what ended up happening with him? Did, did you follow that at all? I heard about it. I didn't follow it closely, but... Oh, my gosh. So, so... He's leading by six strokes heading into Sunday at the Memorial Tournament and then gets notified as he's walking off the 18th green that he had tested positive for COVID and has to withdraw. Can't play Sunday. I mean, and and he was gracious about it. And and I mean, he's won a lot. He's he's done very well in golf. So, you know, I don't think this this paycheck was the difference between him being, you know, solvent or not, but uh, just at a personal level to play that well and then have to withdraw it was it was heartbreaking to see but um yeah it it is what it is well it's disappointing to miss out on those points too for the uh, end of year yeah that's true i feel like at that level they're probably just more competitive in those regards because they're getting their paycheck from sponsors anyway yeah i I would assume that's probably true i mean I'm, i'm sure there's a bunch of pieces to it but uh in in any case i i was disappointed for him and uh yeah i mean he he had just played so so incredible so let's move into our topic for today, because uh, I think this is going to be something that we touch on from time to time, but we might as well put our own, uh, I guess, where we stand today on record, because as advisors and inside the the money management, asset management community at large, I'm not sure that there's a bigger debate between active investing and passive investing. Can, can you think of a, of, of a bigger intellectual debate inside the community. No, I, I think you're right. I think that's the big one. No matter which shop you're in or, or what kind of firm, that's talked about both with clients and among advisors frequently. Yeah. So, so you know, going back to the 70s with Jack Bogle inventing the index fund, there has been a massive shift towards index funds as opposed to active investment vehicles. Now, active investing... So I, I guess just to to kick us off at the top, let's start by defining those, right? Because I think sometimes people hear active investing and think trading a lot, right? That, that's an active trading strategy. That's not true. Active investing is having a difference of opinion from the market as a whole, right? So in theory, if you took an index like the S&P 500 
And let's say we removed three companies from it. We've made an active decision. You could own the index exactly as it is, minus three companies, and you know, that is an active decision. Now, how active you are, there's different measurements of that. There's different levels of that. But just the act of taking or adding to something in different weights than an index, is in that's included in active investing. It doesn't necessarily mean trading a lot. I always think of it as having an opinion on a business. So in your example, taking away the three companies, it's not so much having a positive opinion of the 497 remaining S&P companies. It's having a negative opinion on the three that you removed. Right. So you you could approach it from any direction of things you don't want to own. And that could fall under things like the ESG, which again, that acronym Environmental, Social and Governance Mandates. There could be something going on in a company that you're choosing not to invest in, anything that you don't support or don't want your money to be associated with. It could be industries that you think are going to underperform the market and not do well, either because of a macro environmental thing or something that's going on with the individual companies, right? There's all sorts of ways to make that decision, but those are active investing decisions to choose something other than how any index is is currently constructed. And I wonder how people are first exposed to this debate. You and I say this is one of the biggest debates in the industry, but as an everyday investor, I wonder at what point you first become aware of being an active investor versus a passive investor, because I I think my road towards investing may be different than most, but it started very early on as investing being an active decision. Right. Yeah, no, I I agree. I, I don't think that people necessarily get to this immediately at kind of the core of the debate going, well, am I an active investor or a passive investor? Um, I I think the study that gets quoted most that I hear is kind of this, hey, mutual fund managers don't don't beat their benchmark over five-year rolling periods 80% of the time, right? I I don't even know which study that is that that gets quoted, but that's literally like verbatim what you hear all the time uh, is mutual fund kind of fodder that, that goes after some of these funds and and whether or not they beat their benchmarks. And that is kind of the proponent of passive investing to say, well, listen, if you can't invest in a fund and beat the index, just join it, right? If And, and, and that gets kind of oversimplified, but, but that's the uh, language that gets used. Right. And, and you and I were talking an index can be a lot of things too. So it's not as simple as I'm an index investor because you could own hundreds of different indexes representing many different categories and and that's hard to interpret in many in many instances. Well, and and I think that that's kind of the the one of the things that bothers me most about some of the language about indexing, right? Because you'll hear investors say things like, "Well, I'm I'm just in an index funds," as if that's like the last decision that they're going to make. Investopedia estimates that there are 5,000 U.S. indices right now, 5,000 different indexes tracking different things in the market, right? And so a simple example would be the typical S&P 500 that gets quoted all the time, both in the news as well as on our show, is a market cap weighted index. That means that companies that are bigger, meaning bigger market cap sizes, have a bigger weight in the index. That is how they choose how much goes into what company. You could also have an equal weight index. You could have all 500 of the S&P companies 
equal weighted. You could have an equal weight by sector, right? Where, you know, if energy is 4%, uh, rather than 9%, which would be if you divided them evenly, you could equal weight the sectors, right? Even inside the same companies, there's so many different ways to slice and dice these things. And whether you're thinking about it or not, when you make an investment into an index fund or an exchange traded fund, you are making an active choice there, right? If you, if you say, hey, listen, I'm just going to buy the S&P 500, you're making a decision that you're going to buy a market cap weighted index and that you're going to buy what is in all likelihood, the most commonly quoted, maybe the Dow, uh, but you're going to buy the most commonly quoted index in the US. You're making an active decision that way to invest US large cap focused. And as we started with, a active decision to exclude other asset classes. So you're ignoring the global market, you're ignoring, ignoring bond markets and all sorts of other asset classes that you could be choosing in exchange for I guess simplicity, and I'm sure there's some people who just hold that one index thinking that's representative of the whole investing universe they need. Well, and I think a little bit of it has come from uh, just a little bit of complacency. Um, and in some respects, that's been rewarding people, at least in recent history. So I'm, I'm looking at the last 10 years. And over the last 10 years, this is on, uh, on YCharts data, the S&P 500 is up 228%. This is not inclusive of dividends. I'm just looking at the at the price return of the index. 228% has been your return in US large cap stocks in the S&P 500 over the last 10 years. If you've owned the US small cap index, I'm using the Russell 2000, you're up 187%. If you've owned the MSCI IFA, which is a developed international index, that's kind of the, the common benchmark internationally, you're up about 39%, a little shy of that, right? So to be somebody that has kind of said, I'm just going to buy the S&P 500 and forget about it, you have been rewarded for, for what I would maybe refer to as complacency. Now, again, that so so it's worked. And so you could look at this and say, well, if it's working, why would I do anything different? But the the history to this does not look like what the last 10 years has. And, and so I think what we would encourage investors to do is if you're thinking just as an index fund investor, if that is your strategy, think beyond just making a complacent decision. Have you made an active choice on what index you're going to follow? Or is the S&P 500 truly the benchmark you want to hold? And so you're just going to try and uh, you're, you're just going to use that as your measuring stick as well as what you're going to invest in. The other thing I hear passive investors cite a lot, rightfully so, is one of the world's greatest active investors, Warren Buffett, said that one of the best things you can do is just throw almost all of your money into an S&P 500 index fund and let it ride. Well, right. And he, and he said that if, uh, if he passes and predeceases his wife, that's basically what he's told her to do with, with their family wealth is, all right, all of this stock picking stuff I've been doing for decades, yeah, just ignore all of that, buy the S&P 500 and leave it alone. Now, one of the things that I think is interesting is, granted, I just quoted the last 10 years, and I'm not using perfect uh, time segmenting here, but I'm looking back at 1980 through 2010. Now, if you look at a different period for index funds, uh, or indices, actually, the actual index, the Russell 2000 has actually outperformed the S&P 500 fairly considerably. 
Over that same time period, which is about a 30-year time period, the S&P 500 is up 933%. The Russell 2000 is up 1,003%, or excuse me, 1,030%. So, you know, the 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 reason I point that out, and, and the, the IFA is in there as well, and the IFA has underperformed those two during that period as well at about 800% returns. Um, but the the reason I guess I point that out is if you were simply looking in the rearview mirror and saying, well, which of these indexes does the best, you would consistently make different decisions than maybe what you would look for forward looking, right? If you had looked at that last 30 years and said, okay, well, the Russell 2000 does the best, that's the best index to be, and I'm just going to put all my money in that, you would have underperformed the S&P. So, you know, that I guess that's one of the first things that, that we're always talking about is you need to be making a forward-looking decision, not just what has done well in the past. One of my favorite charts as an advisor, and I don't even remember what we called them, but it was basically a, a chart showing each asset class by year and ranking which performed best. Each was color-coded, and you would just see the colors jumping around from top to bottom year by year, basically showing that you can't if you chased performance, you would consistently underperform because the top performers were often in the bottom half the very next year. Uh, so it was very hard to to play that game. Right. Yeah. Kind of like a quilt chart, you mean? Quilt chart. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the passive investing side, right? I, I think people tend to underestimate how many decisions they're actually making, even if they're a passive investor. Now, the thesis of passive investing in general is that the market is essentially right, that the market is a very efficient pricing mechanism. And uh, the efficient market hypothesis essentially states that whatever the current active market price is, that is the price, right? That it is an accurate valuation system. When you look at the trading in a meme stock like AMC over the last couple of weeks, or even really this year, and again, we're not making any commentary on buying or selling AMC. This is not a recommendation to do anything. But does that look like rational behavior where the market is setting an effective price based on the most current information? No, not even remotely. Right? That that looks like wild speculation. And and I think that's what it is. And I realize there's a fight going on between the shorts, between the Reddit crowd and the folks that have piled their money into AMC. And then quite frankly, now you've got a third player, which is AMC itself, which has decided that if the market is going to bid these shares up, that they're going to go on offense, they're going to issue even more shares and generate some cash at these new valuations that they're going to use, hopefully to improve their business, right? And that that's their thesis is, hey, if people are willing to pay this, if the market is saying that we're willing to pay this, we're going to issue shares and, and use that cash. But they are so guarded in that the the statement released in their most recent filing essentially said you're likely to lose your money, right? I mean, they they basically said price action has been disjointed. The economic situation does not match what our price action has been uh, and issued a huge what we used to call like a skull and crossbones sort of warning to anyone considering buying AMC shares in this recent filing. So I don't know how you can look at that and go, yeah, that's a rational market setting a rational price. For what it's worth, I think AMC is doing the exact right move. You may as well take the money if someone will give it to you. 
And you mentioned that these meme stock traders are speculating. I'm not even sure I would call it speculating because it's almost like a religion for them. So they're not speculating that AMC is going to go up. It's more the herd mentality that we are so committed to this becoming true that we will make it true. We will make AMC like stock price go to the moon. We're holding forever, you know, fight us. Well, and and I think a lot of that has to do partially with the fact that they're trying to squeeze the shorts. Right. So so part of the strategy in a short squeeze is essentially you're finding a uh, and I, I won't go completely through the mechanics of how a short works, but basically when somebody shorts a stock, when a hedge fund or an individual shorts a stock, they are borrowing those shares, selling them, and then they're going to have to buy them back. What's really interesting about that is that when they're getting chewed up and losing money, if they have to go cover or close their position out, that means they have to go buy the stock back. And so that additional buying when they're buying just to replace the shares that they borrowed, that puts more and more and more upward pressure on the stock. That's why a short squeeze can be so violent in terms of how quick the stock moves that that if you're forcing that to happen, if you're forcing these big positions to have to buy back a bunch of shares that they didn't want to, then yeah, you can get some really, really fast price movement. And I think the reason we bring this scenario up is just to illustrate how the pricing a stock, valuing a stock, right? I guess those two things aren't always in line. The price of a stock and the value of a stock are not reflective of its future earnings all the time. It can be reflective of so many different things, including a Reddit group deciding that they're going to you know, stick it to the man and squeeze the, the short sellers out. Yeah, no, I, I, I 100% agree. I don't, I don't know that anybody can look at what goes on in the markets today and how quick some of the movements are and think the businesses are changing that fast, right? That is not a response. The day-to-day market fluctuations, in my opinion, and and this is partially why we believe in active investing, at least for some portion uh, or, or for certain people, and we'll get into that in just a moment, but we believe there are disconnects in the market between the valuation of companies and what the business is worth. And and I do think that if you're observing the market regularly, you can see that. And I don't know that it's always obvious whether something's over or underpriced. There's debate about that. And that is what the market's doing is it's actively fighting that out and trying to set a price. But there's no question in my mind that you can see very, very large dislocations. And, And I think AMC is a great example of that, that that's very possible and happens pretty frequently in the market. Yeah, we've been seeing it more and more as the ability to trade has literally moved into people's palms, whereas back in the day, putting in a trade was an involved and expensive process, and it's become largely democratized. And I think even moving to like teenagers, isn't that what Robin Hood's trying to do? Yeah, no, Ro- Robin Hood has, has definitely uh, taken a different tactic than, than really what all the other brokerages have. Um, and there's a lot of things about Robinhood I still don't like, but they're getting a lot more people involved in investing. And they pushed a lot of other companies, in my opinion, to go to zero commissions. I, I think, you know, watching a lot of the major brokers, Fidelity, Schwab, TD Ameritrade, all have to go to zero commission trading. I think that was in direct response so that they didn't lose accounts to Robinhood because people were going, why am I paying five, six, seven bucks when Robinhood's free? So as I see younger and younger people get more directly involved with investing, and I think a lot of them are 
making active trading decisions for better or worse. Perhaps it's the influence of social media and all these memes, and maybe perhaps it's something else. But one thing that I like about active investing is actually a behavioral thing. And I care a lot more about my investments when I get to pick a company that I like. So I'm less likely to jump out and make rash moves because I feel vested in the success of this business that I chose for whatever reason, whether it's a brand that I I use or just a company I've been tracking. Uh, and I can tell the story to myself better instead of it just being this thing that I have no connection with. I agree, right? If you're if you're looking at the market as a whole, what you're hoping for is that uh, the economy as a whole continues to improve, which I, I'm rooting for, right? Me, me being an active investor isn't me rooting against that, but you're hoping for the economy in general to improve and these companies as a whole to do better. Uh, as an individual stock investor or as a more active investor, I can tie into what does this company do and do I think that we're going to need more of that in the future, right? That is, uh, and 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 in addition to how is management doing, do I think they're making good decisions, right? There, there's so many other things that we look at. It's not purely do I think that there's demand in, in that space, but um, it's much easier for me to talk myself through that, especially in times of turmoil, than the market as a whole is is resilient. And I feel like I've been through that exercise a couple times very recently where a security has been a, a underperformer and I'll, I'll dive deep into it to see what's going on because I'm concerned. And as I'm looking into the business and seeing how they've been executing, it kind of validates my thesis and I get excited about it again. It's like the stock price is going down, but these people are executing really well. I'm more convinced, convinced that this is a company I want to hang on to. So if you're sitting at home thinking, okay, so there's there's valid reasons to be an active investor, there's valid reasons to be a passive investor, which I think is probably where where you and I come out on, right? There's things we like about active investing. We think it might make, make some things easier behaviorally. We might think uh, that active investing offers us opportunities to, to express an idea differently, but I don't think that there's anything wrong with passive investing. I don't want that to be what people take away from this. And I actually started thinking in this term recently of kind of, in addition to a risk tolerance, a tolerance for deviation. Because if you're an active investor, you're by definition saying, I'm going to get different results than the market. Whether Again, whether that's you're following the S&P 500 or anything else, right? As soon as you do something different, you're likely to get a different result. And that's what you're hoping for. That means you're going to likely go through periods of outperformance and underperformance, depending on how accurate your prediction was and over what time period. Some people are very comfortable with that. Others really aren't. And so as I think about this debate, I don't think it needs to be that we're going to have active investing or passive investing. I think for a lot of people, a mixture is appropriate. If you have a very low tolerance for deviation from the market, Maybe you do a heavy weighted index portfolio and a small sliver or a sleeve of some active ideas, right? You could do it kind of like a hub and spoke model where 90% of your portfolio might be just in index funds and 10% you take for kind of peppering in some of the opportunities that you think are exciting. If you've got more confidence and more tolerance for that deviation, maybe you go to 50-50. If you've got no tolerance for that, great, buy index funds. 
buy exclusively index funds. I think that's fine, right? I think you can invest very well either way. But as we think about this debate, don't think of it as black and white. You know, you could either hedge your risk as an active investor and say, okay, I'm going to set this aside, this percentage aside, either on the assumption that I could be wrong or simply to balance out my own thinking. But I do think that that combination is what's appropriate for a lot of people, that that building some piece of that together makes a lot of sense. If for nothing else, just to keep you excited about your finances, looking at your statement and seeing brands that you recognize is a way to make sure you're focusing on your statement because you're interested in those stories. Those are decisions that you made versus, you know, it can be very boring looking at an S&P 500 fund month after month and, you know, I guess easy to forget about it. I wouldn't know, <laughs> but if I'm putting myself in those shoes, you know, I, I just am the type of person who feels like it needs to be in front of me and I need to be excited about it. And if I'm excited about buying new companies, I'm more likely to put money into that portfolio because look at all these ideas that I have running around. Um, that's just my perspective. But again, like Ross said, the best thing to do is invest no matter what style you're following. So the, the only wrong answer is to do nothing. Uh, I think both are very valid ways to achieve your long-term financial goals. And it's really all about understanding yourself at the end of the day. Couldn't agree more. So if you've got thoughts on active or passive or really anything that we've talked about on our show or things you want us to talk about on our show, the email address, check your balances at outlook.com. It is also in the description of the episode. Send us a note. And if you like what we're doing here, Give us a rating on any podcast platform that you listen on. We appreciate it. It helps us with the algorithms. Uh, or just send the show to somebody, right? It, sh- share it. We're, we're still uh, growing our audience. We, we appreciate everybody that's tuned in so far. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will see you next week. <laughs>